You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Great job, uh, Rachel and Joel, and uh, good job to the parents raising <laughs> raising such fantastic, good-looking kids. And so, yeah, I agree with Rachel and Joel. I really hope that you are encouraged and stirred up. Uh, as you join us today. If you're new, welcome. Uh, my name is Richard, and it's just a joy to have you tune in. And to my Every Nation family, wherever you may be watching across the GTA, or even across Canada or the world, uh, it's always great to be beaming into your living room or wherever you're catching this. Yep, we're in a series called Unstoppable, and uh, it's in the book of Acts, and uh, we're not going to be going through the whole book of Acts in one chunk, but uh, we're in the first early parts of the book of Acts, and really exciting things happen as this new community of Jesus followers, the church is forming, and uh, we're seeing some radical things they're doing. I'm very sorry to have to start this message on such a low point, but I've affectionately called this image that you're going to see on your screen, hopefully soon, uh, the choke. And um, I had really anticipated and hoped that this image uh, of our beloved Maple Leafs was going to come on the back of a win last night. Uh, but that was not to be. And true to form, uh, you know, one thing you can say about the Leafs is at least they're consistent. They always seem to take us to game seven. But this was May 13, 2013. So some years back. And uh, I was three months, we were three months into our journey into Canada. And I was sitting with a friend and I was like, I come from a mad sport country, South Africa. I'm like, this is Canada, hockey, I'm all in. I'm in Toronto, Leafs is my team, ride or die. And I'm watching game seven against the Boston Bruins that Leafs were playing and they were leading 4-1 going into the third period. In fact, I think they were leading all the way into the midway through the third period. And true to form, Boston Bruins score, 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 and get it to 4-4, and they go into overtime, and the heartbreak is the Boston Bruins won that game. We exited the first round of that playoffs, and we seem to have done that pretty well in a few other playoffs in these years. And so I turned to my friend. I'm like, wow, does this always happen? And he's like, oh, you're a, if you're going to be a Leafs fan, this is heartache for life for you. So... Here we go. So we're praying for us. So if you're not a Leafs fan, you can commiserate with us. But uh, here we go. It's going to be a nerve-wracking Game 7 tomorrow night. Hopefully they can uh, uh, break the narrative that seems to be open. But it's called the choke. And so in sports, oftentimes the label gets thrown around, the choker. Um, The opposite of that is what's called big match temperament. When it comes to important moments in an athlete's game, whatever that may be, in an individual, like a tennis match or team sport like hockey or whatever it may be, Oftentimes, uh, athletes can either rise to the occasion or have a failure of nerve um, or choke if it's consistently happening. And so how does this connect at all with what we're talking about today? Well, one, we just love the Leafs, um, even though they cause us heartbreak. But we're talking about opposition. And so, yes, we're looking at the book of Acts and we're being inspired and being encouraged. And we are saying, God, do it in our day. Do the the miracles, the breakthroughs, just the amazing things they're experiencing. And so we come to the, the part in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. And the church up until now has had a really good stretch. It's been incredible growth. They've grown from 120 to 3,000, thousands of people beginning to place their faith in Jesus. They're seeing signs and wonders and incredible miracles happen. But then Acts 4 begins to change a bit as they begin now to have some an unbroken series of opposition, hostility, 
and even persecution. In fact, we're going to wrap up season one uh, of uh, Unstoppables with the uh, look at the first martyr, Stephen, and that's going to be in a few Sundays' time. And so as we cry to God for more of this in our day, are we saying, God, we want more opposition? I don't think that's our prayer. But today we're going to be looking at what how does how are we to think about opposition? How do you think about opposition to faith? How are we to respond and react to it as we try to live uh, faithfully to Jesus and follow Jesus in our time? And so to get you caught up in Acts chapter 4, what's happened is um, Peter and John have had this incredible encounter with this lame man from birth. He's being He's in his 40s, and he's been lame from birth. He's well-known in Jerusalem. Everyone knows this man. Every day, someone, friends, bring him to the temple so he can beg and earn his living by receiving alms from people. And one day, Peter, uh, in the name of Jesus, heals the man, and he gets up, and everyone hears the story. And obviously, it causes a stir in Jerusalem, and a crowd draws by. And Peter is looking at this, and he takes the opportunity to preach to him and say, not us. Don't look at me or John like we've done something special, like we're holy men. Ah, this is Jesus. And he kind of has this refrain, Jesus crucified. Remember, you guys crucified. You're complicit in his death. Remember that guy? Yeah. So he rose from the grave. We saw him. Hundreds of people testified to see him. It's him. He is Lord and he is doing this. Are you with him? Are you for him or are you against him? That's basically what he's saying. He's laying down the challenge to the people. Now the religious leaders, the, the Jewish religious leaders hear this commotion and they begin to enter into the story. And so join with me in Acts chapter 4. Um, I'm going to read it. The text is not going to be on your screen, but just let's get into the shoes uh, of those uh, first century people as they, as, as Peter and James, uh, Peter, sorry, Peter and John are, um, having this moment with these uh, these religious leaders. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, And as they were speaking to the people, Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So an incredible growth that we're seeing in the first uh, part of the early church. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power and by what name did you do this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember last week we talked, we heard about just the necessity of the Spirit in filling us. And so Peter, now filled again with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you uh, and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. No kidding. It's pretty hard to refute when the lame man from birth, everyone knows about it, standing next to you. 
pretty hard to refute that evidence. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evidence to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray and let's dive in to where opposition fits within our faith journey. Father, we're so grateful uh, for the work of your spirit forming the community of Jesus in the early uh, first century. But God, here we are in the 21st century, and you are still by your spirit forming a people, a Jesus people, to bear witness to the power and the lordship and the kingdom of Jesus through word and deed and in power. And so we are asking God in our time, in our day, would you fill us afresh, Spirit of God? Would you come? Would you encourage us, strengthen us, give us insight through your word today in Jesus' name? Amen. All righty. So uh, let's, uh, before we, we get into this passage, and what I really want to do is just look in ways that we're to think about opposition, obviously, in our time. It's, it's you know, different to that time. But I want to just, if you're unfamiliar, or even if you are familiar, I just highlight uh, Peter's journey. So uh, opposition in Peter's journey. So Peter was one of the uh, inner circle uh, of Jesus' disciples. He, he got to see, have a front row seat to Jesus. He followed Jesus. He was a, he was a fisherman, kind of an ordinary guy. He wasn't one of the religious scribes or leaders. That's what they were saying. He's uneducated. It's not that Peter couldn't read or whatever. It's just that they weren't trained in the way of Scripture and the Torah and all that kind of thing. But Jesus chose to, to say, hey, Peter, come follow me. And he follows him. And uh, and Peter gets a front row seat to this Jesus. It's saying the kingdom of God is at hand, and he backs it up with these spectacular signs and wonders and miracles that we know about through Jesus' life. And there comes a moment towards the end of Jesus' ministry where he knows now his uh, his destiny is taking him to the cross, which is a very different idea that they would have had of a Messiah. A Messiah wasn't going to die. A Messiah was going to reign and, and rule and overthrow the Roman Empire, not die. Um, and so Peter, you know, a, just boldly, like Peter is, kind of brashly just says, Jesus, I'm with you, ride or die. I'm going to be faithful to the end with you. Whatever may come, I'm with you. Nothing's going to deter me. And, uh, you know, Jesus knows better. But um, it didn't take much for, for Jesus to crumble. And so Jesus gets arrested, and it takes a teenage girl, a teenage girl who recognizes that Peter was with Jesus for, G- for Peter to deny Jesus. So in his moment, he choked. In his moment, after brashly saying, ride or die, I'm with you, Jesus, it took a teenage girl saying, hey, I recognize you. Weren't you also with Jesus? And he denied and cursed and swore and just denied Jesus. And so if you're familiar with that story. And so when you and I say, you know, I'm going to stand in the face of opposition, we must be careful like because sometimes opposition catches us by surprise. Sometimes we think it's going to come from government like this. And it was a teenage girl around a campfire that got Peter to really stumble and choke in his moment. But to Peter's credit, he was gutted in that moment. 
And uh, God used it, Jesus really particularly used it to, as a transformation for, for Peter and forgave him and restored him. And now we see a different Peter. And now Peter is standing in front of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish high court. It was the highest of highest leaders, about 71 of them that were gathered. And he's in front of these people. And you've got to think the playlist, the soundtrack that's going through his mind is something of the Hamilton one. I'm not throwing away my shot. I'm not throwing away my shot. I'm not going to deny Jesus now. I've got this audience. This is my moment. I'm not going to choke. Game seven. Here we are. It's on. And so he does. He has a boldness. And, uh, you know, I don't think we can underestimate that little phrase Luke, the author, writes into the story, filled with the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit. There's something about the Holy Spirit that can take your personality, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, whether you're shy and timid or whether you're bold and outspoken. The Holy Spirit is the game changer for Peter and is the game changer for you and I to do extraordinary, courageous things, even sometimes despite our personalities. And so Jesus prepares Peter, prepares his disciples, and inadvertently prepares us for moments like this. Look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12. He says, speaking to his disciples, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is the moment. You've got to be thinking, Peter's like, I remember this. Jesus told me what was going to happen. This is it. This is the moment. And then Peter goes on throughout Acts. You see, he goes on. Eventually, we see his wisdom come out in a letter. First Peter, we actually did a series this past summer. In that, stand firm. Remember that? It's all about his wisdom and how to live faithfully to Jesus in an increasingly adverse uh, situation. And then eventually, as history tells us, that Peter was eventually martyred. He was crucified upside down for his face. We see an incredible transformation in the life of Peter's journey as he faced opposition. So what we want to look today as we look to this particular narrative is what do we learn about facing opposition and following Jesus? Well, one of the things that we've got to understand is that opposition is to be expected. It's We're not to be caught out by surprise. To follow in the way of Jesus means, if we're going to follow faithfully in the way of Jesus, means that it's going to cause some resistance or some opposition, and we're to draw strength from the example of Jesus himself. Again, Jesus to his disciples, to you and me in John 15, with words of encouragement, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So this really is a discipleship or apprenticeship issue. If we're going to be disciples of Jesus, if we're going to learn and follow the ways of Jesus, to be a disciple means to be with and to become like uh, your teacher. Then we're to, like Jesus said, if they uh, push back on me, if they oppose me, if they persecuted me, it's probably going to be you too. Uh, Don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. In verse 13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They'd recognized that being with Jesus. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It means to follow him and that people recognize that we're following in his footsteps. And sometimes our lifestyle, our conviction, and our values are diametrically opposed to how people around us are living. And so that sometimes causes resistance. That sometimes causes opposition. And in certain instances, sometimes causes severe persecution. So Jesus is Lord is what it also means to follow Jesus. Not just be with Jesus, become like Jesus, but it's also to bear witness to Jesus. That's what it means for Jesus 
to, for us to follow Jesus, to bear witness to Jesus. Not that Jesus is a good guy, Jesus is a miracle worker, Jesus is, is you know, he's, he's all those things and more, but essentially what Peter and the first early church is saying, hey, Jesus died, crucified, we're all complicit in that. Uh, Jesus rose from the grave, and because he's resurrected, Jesus is Lord. It's a statement about how the world is changed now. It's a statement not just of religious truth, but it's truth that changes how we're to view everything, everything, who we are, our identity, our sexuality, how we think about money, how we think about fame, how we think about success, how we raise a family, what we think about relationships, how we look at our work, what we think about spiritual, what we think about uh, the world. Everything begins to shift as we come under the authority of Jesus is Lord. And so verse 12 is the essence of this statement. It says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Oh, there are many things under heaven by which we must be saved. For many people, it's a particular political party by which we must be saved. For other people, it's getting ahead in the rat race and earning financial freedom. That's how you're going to be saved. For others, it's finding a spouse. That's how I'm going to be saved. For others, it's earning a certain education. That's my ticket to be saved. There are millions of ways that we look to salvation in different ways. And Jesus comes on the scene and he, he triumphantly and exclusively says, I am Lord, follow me. Now, it's the most inclusive exclusivity because there's one way, Jesus' way of, of looking at life in the world is incomparably better, uncomparably better than anything else. Um, exclusively. That's how the world is, was meant to be. That's how the world makes sense. That he that's how he's redeemed us and restoring all things back to us. Are we with him or against him? But he opens it up to everyone and anyone, young to old, rich to poor, doesn't matter your ethnic, racial background, whatever. It doesn't even matter your religious background. Jesus invites us all to come into this new paradigm of Jesus is Lord. David Bosch, the 20th century South African, shout out to my South African there, missiologist and theologian, put it beautifully like this. He says, mission is more and different from recruitment to our brand of religion. It is alerting people to the universal reign of God through Christ. It's not just your personal private faith. It's the universal reign. Jesus is Lord. Are you for him or are you against him? It's the constant preaching of the early church. So I want to look very quickly at four things that we can learn from this passage about opposition. Firstly, opposition and context. Opposition looks very different in different contexts. Right now in our world, um, there's incredible persecution happening amongst Christians. In fact, sometimes we look at these stories and think, oh, that's, that's a, of a primitive age. Uh, right now, it's, it's arguably one of the most dangerous times, um, not just of being a Christian and certain other religions are persecuted as well, but especially for Christianity in certain parts of the world, it's incredibly um, hard to live out your faith. It comes with a heavy price and a heavy crust. Uh, our brothers and sisters, even in our every nation world, will testify that. And so let's not be naive to think just because we're in our Western world bubble where we still celebrate some level of religious freedom that this is not happening. But we do live in a different context. We do live in a context of religious freedom, and yet we're seeing hostility uh, increasingly, the temperature rise of opposition towards some of these exclusive claims of Jesus and of Christianity. This look, the complexities of our cultural moment have created 
a complex environment to live out your faith. I want to look at four four things of just our number one pluralism. Pluralism means it's just many ways, many ways that people think uh, spell out how to best to live life. There are many religions, many different ideas of truth, many different ways of living. Um, at the beginning of 2020, I became um, part of the uh, chap- uh, Campus Chaplains Association at UFT for the St. George cap- Campus. St. George Campus has about 50,000 students, and the, the chaplains are a um, spiritual service to the staff, the faculty, and students. And so uh, once a month, we meet as di- different chaplains, and I've had to grow in working together with people from different backgrounds, uh, for example, like Buddhists, Hindu, humanist, the Jain, the Jewish, the Muslim, the pagan, the Sikh, and the universalists that are also providing spiritual services to staff, faculty, and students. And so, especially in Toronto, we know how such a, a gift, the diversity and the plurality of different cultures is. But with that comes a, a very different ways that people look at the world, look at God, look at spirituality. Secondly, postmodernism. Postmodernism is a complex, but for this one, really what it's saying is there is a suspicion and a rejection against any meta narrative, anything that would say this is the way to look at reality, this is the way to think about truth. Uh, there's a rejection, a resistance to that, and a resistance to the authority and power behind that. And so there is a, an increasing rejection to statements that Peter was saying there's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. Postmodernism rejects that. And so that's another thing about our context. We see it in cancel culture, right? Be careful. So many people uh, are really careful what they have to say, almost fearful in what they say, because there can be a very big and quick and swift pushback if it doesn't line up with the narrative that society wants to run with. Postmodernism really leads to individualism. And so if we're rejecting external authority, what we set up is internal authority. The highest value is your self-definition, your self-expression. You do you, you live out your truth is the mantra of our day, is the religion of our day, is the way to be saved under heaven of our day. You do you, you live your truth, and anyone who stifles that is to be condemned and cancelled. And so lastly, it leads us to secularism in our context. And so secularism is increasingly pushed faith and religion to the margins of society. Secularism says basically uh, the privatization of faith. Faith uh, doesn't belong in the public. You might have, what you do on your time and your basis is, is up to you. You do you, but don't you do you in front of everyone else and force other people. That's basically it. So it's, it's an intolerance of the tolerance in some ways, or if I got that the other way around. And so personal faith doesn't belong in public is what they would say. In 2019, I, I was fascinated by this, and it's actually true, and it's, it's alarmingly increased, particularly here in Canada, become very quickly a secular state. Um, 2019 Pew Research um, did a, a survey and said two-thirds of Canadians, so 67%, that's a lot, uh, say it's not necessary to believe in God in order to be moral or to have good values. In other words, we can live a good life. We can live the Canadian dream. We don't need God for that. That's basically, so that's secular. It's pushing God to the margins uh, of, of public life. And so that's our context. 
And so each generation has had to wrestle, what does it look like to be faithful to Jesus in our context? And so you might be watching from a different city or a different part of the world. You've got to figure out what some of those things are not as big in your context. But in all of our context, there's going to be resistance and opposition to pushing back um, against following Jesus. And here's a question I was confronted with. I was listening to a, a message or a podcast the other day, and there was someone in our, in, our cult, in our Western culture, and he says, you know, we're all longing for a, a, some normalcy, a post-pandemic normalcy to return. We, we are. He says, what if following Jesus in Western culture only gets harder? We thought about that. Sometimes we think, you know, sometimes we're thinking about opposition, that opposition really, uh, you know, stifles growth. What happens, what if following Jesus in Western culture is only going to get harder? What's our plan? What's your plan uh, to follow Jesus as you encounter maybe potentially increasing opposition and hardship? Well, it actually takes us into the next one, opposition and growth. Sometimes there's a false dichotomy. You're either having incredible growth and favor or you're having opposition and persecution. That's a false dichotomy. In fact, if history tells us anything, God seems to do his greatest growth and favor for the Christian church in increasingly uh, hostile, adverse environments. The underground church in China, our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, seeing incredible growth in the church. We always don't hear much, as much about it because of the nature of having to keep that secret. And yet we see the stagnant church here in the West with so much privilege, so much freedom uh, of religion. We've been lulled into complacency sometimes because of that. And so... Verse 4, you've got to see the opposition, particularly as you read the book of Acts, you've, as we can increasingly see hostility and opposition. And right now it's just with the Jewish people, but it's going to grow to the, even the Roman Empire is going to begin to see the threat of Jesus' law to their stability. It's a threat, a destabilizing threat to the way of life. So verse 4 and verse 21 says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Verse 21, and when they had further threatened them and been arrested, then let them go, finding a way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. And so opposition can and often does occur alongside growth and favor. And so for you and I, it's not that we, I don't think we're ever encouraged to welcome opposition, to pray for opposition, to seek it out. But I think we're to have a realistic picture of reality and to not be surprised at opposition. And to say that the, the gospel and Christianity doesn't need a Christian environment to thrive and grow. In fact, it often thrives and grows very well in very non-Christian and that environments. And that's good news for us in the West, particularly as we see some of those secularisms and things um, taking place. So uh, I, love, uh, I love what Leslie Newbegin, a 20th century uh, British theologian and missionary, actually was from the place that I was born, Newcastle, in England. He said it like this, we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. Provokes questions. Provocation can be uncomfortable, right? We don't want to be seen as provocative people, but we're to live in a way, if we're living and following Jesus in a way that no one notices any difference between our life and their life, we've got to ask questions of ourselves. Uh, are we just pursuing everything else that culture is pursuing? Are we living uh, with a different worldview that Jesus is Lord, that changes the way I raise my kids, that changes the way I think about money, it changes the way of what success means in this life? Because everyone has different answers for that. And Jesus, the way of Jesus sometimes is very opposed to 
what society would give answers to that. Peter later in his letter, First Peter 3.15, says it like this as well. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And so opposition, opposition can actually be a very healthy sign uh, of faithfully following Jesus. The concern should be the two extremes. If we, over a long period of time, experience no opposition, no pushback, that could be a sign that we're irrelevant or even cowards and not taking enough risks in our witness to Jesus, right? Or if we're only ever experiencing opposition with no growth, that can also be a bad sign that we're probably fundamental and being jerks and just religious and just like we have all this. And I think we know some churches and people that come to mind when we think of that camp. And I think we've got to find ourselves somewhere in the middle here following Jesus. Following Jesus was incredibly attractive to many people, but also repelled many people. And we've got to be comfortable with that. I know it's not easy um, for me as well. You want to be liked by everyone. But sometimes if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to have difficult conversations with people. But to have difficult conversations, but not to be difficult people, if that makes sense at all. And so we're going to be figuring that out as we go along. And by the way, just a shout out to our small groups. We're going to have some fun in our small groups this week with some of these questions. Because number three... We see here also opposition and biblical civil disobedience. Now, we cannot do a deep dive on civil disobedience. That could be an entire message in and of itself. But we do see it. I did want to raise it because it actually, in some ways, is hinted at in this narrative. And uh, I think we're living in a time where we're seeing a lot more um, a rise of justice and good causes and different people are taking different actions. And so one of the things that the church has witnessed albeit a minority, but they seem to get their headlines, is a lot of churches have seen uh, the stance of the, the government restricting in-person gatherings as a sign, a time to take biblical civil disobedience. So what biblical civil disobedience basically is an intentional and deliberate disobeying of the laws in peaceful protest um, with the motivation of obedience to God, of obedience to man. Some people have thought that the government saying we can't meet in person because of a health hazard right now is a, is a sign that we're to, to disregard that. And so, again, they make all the headlines. The majority of pastors and churches that I know are happy to comply. Love thy neighbor. Looks like wearing a mask and socially distancing. At no stage has the Canadian government, to my mind, at no stage has the Canadian government forbid you and I to speak of Jesus, to teach about Jesus, to worship Jesus, to gather uh, with others who follow Jesus, albeit over online, we're doing that right now. So um, if you disagree, our service host would love to entertain those disagreements with you in the chat today. Um, sorry, Alex. But uh, no, jump in on one of our small groups because we're going to talk about that because it is a contentious and has been an unfortunate divisive issue in the church in the West. Like that's the fight we're going to pick, right? That's the fight we're going to pick right now. And so, but... Um, Verse 18 to 20, though, there is times where biblical civil disobedience is necessary and called upon. So they said, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. What happens when a government, when authority says you can't teach, speak, witness in the name of Jesus? This then could be our answer. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
There are governments right now that forbid people to gather in the name of Jesus, forbid people to speak of the name of Jesus, forbid people to worship the name of Jesus. And Christians have had to make heavily costly decisions to, to go against that. Um, and God is honored in that. It is better to obey God than to obey man. But you've got to be very careful what you put under biblical civil disobedience. I would really encourage you, um, Pastor Steve Murrell, who leads our Every Nation Movement, has given a great 20-minute video on biblical civil disobedience. So I encourage you to check it out on YouTube. Just look in Steve Murrell, Every Nation, Biblical Civil Disobedience. He unpacks it beautifully and obviously does a much thorough job than I can do right now. And then lastly, opposition and our response. How are we to respond as and when opposition arises? Maybe it's in family. Maybe it's with friends, maybe in your workplace, maybe in culture, maybe this is, you're going to be encountering people going to push back on you as you follow Jesus. Um, well, in summary, as we faithfully follow and practice the way of Jesus, we should and can expect levels of opposition to our beliefs, our values, and our lifestyle provoking, right? That was what um, Leslie was talking about, living in such a way that provokes questions of why do you... Why do you live like that? Why do you raise your kids like that? Why do you believe that about marriage? Why do you do that with your money? Why do you give money? You know, like, don't you know how expensive it is to buy a house in anywhere in the world right now? Yes, we are all very aware of that, but we just live by a different set of rules. We live by a different paradigm. We believe uh, generosity is the first thing over saving and investing. And I'm not diminishing saving and investing, but I wanted, like, that's just another way that we just live differently. So, how should we treat those who ridicule? oppose or persecute us because of it. Just three things. We want to be a people of courage, of compassion, and a people of Christ. We want to be a people of courage, not outrage. Courage, not outrage. We want to be a people of compassion, not confrontational. There's a difference. It's not shying away from confrontation, but we're not confrontational per se. It's not an us versus them here that we're trying to set up. And lastly, we want to be a people of Christ, not necessarily Christianity. And I may explain that as Peter and John point back to Jesus. And I encourage you, you can get up into debates about Christianity and the church does this and the church does that. And there's very different ways that the church handles different things right now. And it's not to say that those are unimportant, but just bring it back to Jesus and bring it back to what Peter says. Hey, Jesus was crucified. History testifies that. There's incredibly strong evidence that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Because he's resurrected from the dead, Jesus is Lord. Are you for him or are you against him? Just bring it back to the simplicity, but the challenge of being a people of courage, of compassion, and of Christ. That's how the early church handled opposition. And that's how we're to handle opposition in the 21st century. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.